Well, hello, Living Hope. It's so good to see all of you here. You know, I don't know about you, but in my Myers-Briggs, if uh, I know that um, there's a choice between being a feeler or a thinker, I don't know what you are, but I definitely lean toward being a thinker. Some of my favorite uh, pop culture heroes are Spock, Data, MacGyver, Sheldon, Linus. I don't know if many of you can resonate with what I'm saying. I, you know, I, I completely empathize with Spock who think that emotions is a weakness. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Living Hope is that we have so many thinkers here. And not to say that uh, feelers are not welcome, but I, 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 I know we have a lot of thinkers. In fact, this next uh, month, we're going to be praying for our educators. And last month, we prayed for our healthcare workers. I don't know if you know this, but uh, healthcare workers and educators are probably two of the more common occupation at Living Hope, both occupations that demand a lot of thinking. You know, I appreciate thinkers because, uh, especially in terms of faith, because thinkers are the kind of people who uh, pursue truth, and when they arrive at truth, they hold on to it like a bulldog, regardless of how they may feel uh, that day. They oftentimes believe that emotions are unreliable and can be a downside, but really what they arrive at a conviction is what matters more. But listen carefully, I believe there's also huge, huge danger for thinkers. And uh, I'll get into that, but today uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. We are going paragraph by paragraph in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the last week of the life of Jesus, and here he is in a debate with some of the smartest thinking critics of his time. I love our passage for today because I believe it will resonate with those who are thinkers, those who are skeptics, those who are intellectuals, those who are honor students, those who simply have questions and are not willing simply to receive just belief by faith, but you need to be convinced in your mind that this is truth. You know, there comes uh, these few moments in our lives when we come close, listen carefully, to the presence of God, and we have an opportunity to engage God and, and how we process that moment will leave us with greater conviction or with a hardened heart. Let me ask you a question, Living Hope. If you had an opportunity to sit with God and you can ask him any question that you want, any question that is within you, what is it that you would ask of God? In our passage for today, there's a group of uh, people, thinkers, who asked God two questions. They were the, the, the hot questions of the day, questions about politics, 
and questions about uh, eternity or the resurrection. And uh, let's get right into it. Uh, first is debating politics. Questions about politics. We begin with verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Those who came to Jesus to ask these questions are not some random uh, seekers, but rather they were delegates sent by a larger group uh, to ask these questions with a purpose. Now, the Pharisees, we are familiar with them. They are probably the largest religious uh, political group in the nation. They were religiously very conservative, and they were very popular among the people. And what we know about them is they're purists, and they uh, didn't want anything to do with the Roman government or the Roman occupiers. They hated them. The Herodians were exactly opposite of the Pharisees. They were a very, very small sect. And instead of saying we don't like the Romans, they uh, embraced them. In fact, they were on the side of the puppet king Herod and thus the name the Herodians. They were more of a political group. They had very little power among the people, but what they did was they had Herod's ears. And so they had influence in that way. They begin their question in verse 14 or their discussion. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. You can kind of tell something's wrong by the amount of flattery they begin with. You know, if you ever have someone who come to you and say, hey, Pastor Steve, we know that you are always right. We know that you're always sincere. We know that you will always tell truth. I'm just bracing for what this person's going to say to me, right? And they begin with all that, and then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Is it lawful? They don't specify biblically lawful or politically lawful, but is it lawful? And then they clarify, and they demand an answer, shall we pay or shall we not pay? They're not asking for a nuanced discussion, but they want a yes and no answer. You know, I always thought over the many, many years that this was uh, mostly a question about uh, the general Jewish discontent with Roman taxation of the Jewish people. And I believe it is that, but I believe, but it is more than that because there were many kinds of taxes. There were uh, like property tax or land tax, or there were forms of income tax where they would tax oil and grain and wine and things of that nature. There were import tax, but this particular tax and the, the question that they're asking is, is it lawful to pay a poll tax? The poll tax is this. Once a year during the census, every Jewish male female and child was required by the Roman government to give a denarius. Not a large sum of money, but symbolic um, taxation. And this apparently rubbed the Jews in, in a significant way. In the year 6 AD, uh, a few decades before this particular time, a man by the name of Judas, not Judas, uh, the Iscariot who betrays Jesus, but another Judas from Galilee, uh, so uh, angry by the poll tax because uh, for the Jews, they felt like a poll tax was a reminder that just being alive means that you were under the jurisdiction, the occupation of the Romans, and you have to pay a penalty for that. 
and adding insult to injury, the, the coin that they demanded was a denarius, a coin that had the image, the icon of the emperor Tiberius at that time. So angry that Judas and his followers revolted against the Roman government, they were soundly uh, killed, but this left a really bad taste among the Israelites that every time that once a year they had to pay a poll tax, it reminded them to their core that they were under occupation by blaspheming a Roman government. It would be an understatement to say that the Jews hated the poll tax. In fact, years later, the Jews revolt again because of taxes. And the Roman came in and they utterly destroyed Jerusalem. In fact, the whole nation is decimated. The nation of Israel, and a lot of us don't remember, the nation of Israel actually ceased to exist from about 70 AD to about 1945 or so. It, they, they just destroyed the nation because of taxation. So the Pharisees, who also hated this tax, who thought this poll tax was blaspheming. And the Herodians who thought, no, we must pay this tax. Colluded, they asked Jesus this question, is it lawful, shall we pay? They're setting up a trap. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to say, no, we should not pay this tax. It, it, it's, it's, un, it's biblically unlawful. Then what would happen is that the Herodians would go immediately and tell Herod or Pilate that this person is an insurrectionist. Or they wanted Jesus to say, of course you can pay this tax or you must pay this tax. And then uh, the Pharisees would, would wild up the crowd and say, look, this man is not for us. He's a blasphemer. He asked for a denarius. They, someone finds one in the in the crowd and he holds it up and whose image or whose icon is on that coin and what is the inscription on it it's an image most likely of caesar tiberius uh, augustus and the inscription it says caesar augustus tiberius son of the divine augustus not only was there an image and uh, an icon of the caesar but he is referred to as the son of a divine father it is blasphemy all the way around. The Pharisees would have been appalled by such an image in which they would have to handle to, in order to appease the Romans' government. They wanted nothing to do with it. But instead of saying you must pay or you, you should not pay, Jesus uh, points out that the coin that you just gave me, the coin that they're demanding is imprinted on it, the property of really minted by the Caesar. And this is Jesus' answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Now, it's kind of hard to understand in the English language, but in the Greek, the word render in its root is give. But instead of simply saying give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, he uses a form of that word that has a, a prefix before it, uh, apodidomai, uh, which means uh, back, give, give back, return to, and that's how it is often translated, return to Caesar what rightly belongs to him. 
The coins were minted by Caesar. It is used by the Roman government and economy. Give to him what belongs to him. And he doesn't stop there, though. He says, now render to God that which belongs to God. Now, I think this is brilliant. He says, look at the coin. Whose image is imprinted on the coin? Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Now look around. Who has the imprint of the image of God within them? And every Jew would have known we are created in the image of God. If God printed his image on us, then yes, then we ought not to, uh, we need to give all of us, all of ourselves to God. The denarius is nothing compared to what God demands of us. In some ways, he's speaking to the thinker Pharisees and the Herodians who thought intellectually should we give or not give this poll tax, but Jesus is really reaching at the heart of the matter. Pharisees, you believe that giving this particular coin is an affront to your religion, faith, who you are, but you fail to give that which is greater to whom he, that belongs to. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 23, and Matthew chapter 23 is a, a whole chapter in which Jesus, Jesus talks to the Pharisees, the ones who are most uh, holy per se. And one of the things he says is in uh, Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's saying... You, are, you care so much about being holy that you don't even want to manage this one coin that happens to have the image of Caesar. But really, in your heart, in your heart, you are like dead man's bones. You are like a whitewashed tomb. In Herodians, you believe that if you simply gave all of it, if you capitulate all of it, that you will somehow be good enough, but that's not good enough. He's speaking to their hearts. Now, let me pause here to explain how we got to this particular moment in history. It, it, you know, this is after three years of Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus had sent a lot of, uh, has said and done a lot of things that have irritated the religious authorities, but because Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee, that it didn't really bother the center of religion, the high priests and the San, uh, Sanhedrins and the, and, uh, and the Sadducees. But now Jesus literally rides in, turns over the table, and calls out the religious elites of being murderers. They have no choice but to confront Jesus. And this is what they determined. In Mark eleven eighteen. and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, the NIV says, to kill him because they feared him. In Mark 12, 12, and they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. So the religious establishment 
and the Sanhedrin, which is like a congress of all of these people, they, they've determined, they made a decision that they must eliminate Jesus. But there are two problems. And if you ever think about uh, the Gospels, I, we, we notice that Jesus had a lot of conflict with the religious establishment. But you, you and I may have wondered, why is it that they didn't simply go and assassinate him? Why didn't they just simply drag him out and stone him? Okay? There are two reasons. There are two hurdles that they had to go through. Number one is this, that the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities did not have the power of capital punishment. They could not simply randomly go and execute someone. That power belonged only to the Roman government. Okay? There's a second problem. Jesus was hugely popular. So even if they did execute him or assassinate him or, or uh, do something unfortunate to Jesus, they feared the reprisal from the massive crowd who, were, uh, who believed John the Baptist was a prophet and Jesus was a, a Messiah. And so in this confrontation, in this debate in Mark chapter 12, uh, the religious leaders send delegates to accomplish two things. One is to get something to trap him, to have him make a statement that they can use as a weapon uh, to indict him uh, with the Roman government. This is why you need to execute this person. He's an insurrectionist. That's what they were trying to do, for number one. Number two, they were trying to discredit him in, uh, in front of the, the, the Jewish crowd. They wanted his popularity to go down. So in fact, in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, another parallel passage, it says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. There was an intellectual debate going on. There was a, there was a, a, a time of question and answer. There was a seemingly a, a search for truth, but, what we realize in this moment in history, the delegates, these people who are asking the question, were filled not with sincerity, but pretense. They weren't trying to get at the truth. They were trying to trap him, indict him, discredit him. Here's the second question that uh, starts in verse 18. The delegates now were Sadducees. And Mark reminds us that the Sadducees were a group that did not believe in the resurrection. Two religious big parties, like the Republicans and the, the Democrats or so, uh, the Pharisees, they're the, 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 in terms of general popularity, they were the more popular group, they were the more conservative religious group, uh, they were the more pure in terms of Israel group. The, the other side is the Sadducee. In terms of overall popularity, they were less popular because they were more concentrated in the capital but they had more political power because they controlled the temple and they had majority rule in the Sanhedrin or the religious congress of Israel. Now, here's one of the fundamental difference, theological differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in all of the Old Testament, which led them to believe that there is a resurrection and the afterlife. The Sadducees believe only the first five books of the Old Testament. And that led them to believe that there is no resurrection and the afterlife because some of the references to an afterlife occur in the Psalms and, and, and other chronicle books. 
And um, uh, and a political difference is this. Also, another uh, important key difference is that the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the Romans. Uh, the Sadducees cooperated with the Romans, and because of that, they were able to gain immense privilege, have control over the temple, and things of that nature. Okay? Now, the Sadducees come in verse 19, teacher, Moses ruled for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. He's, uh, they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. If a, man, if a Jewish male dies, um, leaving his wife but no child, that his uh, brother should marry that widowed wife and, and then carry on the, the family lineage and the property and things of that nature. It's kind of a weird thing for us, but, um, and by the way, uh, if that brother is um, uh, married, then he, do he doesn't have to do it. And this is the basis of the book of Ruth, by the way, Kinsman Redeemer, okay? Uh, so they refer to this particular law, and they, uh, and they extrapolate a, almost a ridiculous, tragic situation. Verse 20, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. When we hear that, I mean, my first conclusion is, poor woman. Married seven times, buried seven of her husband, no child. What a tragic, tragic life. They paint this uh, fictitious scenario. And it sounds like a ridiculous situation, but I believe there's a legitimate question that they're asking in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife shall she be? For all seven had married her. Every time she uh, said her vow, um, I love you now until death. And, and the Jews believed in like the soulmate type of thing. And so they ask a legitimate question. All seven of her husbands died and eventually she dies and she wakes up and she's in heaven and she f faces all seven of her ex-husbands are they her husbands or not or is this and, and and if so is this a case of perpetual eternal awkwardness it's a legitimate question by the way the reason why the Sadducees were asking this question is a question is because the Pharisees um, in some ways believed that the afterlife eternity is almost a, an overtime extension of the current life where the age that you died is the age that you will spend eternity. Any kind of infirmity you have, if you are glasses in this life, that you wear glasses in the eternity. That if you were married in this life, that you would be married in eternity, and things as such. So it's a legitimate question. If you had seven husbands, whose wife are you in eternity? By the way, this is not that ridiculous in the Mormon religion, they believe that a, a man, um, a, 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 a devout Mormon man in eternity can have multiple of wives. And in the Muslim religion, uh, a, a martyr will have 70, 72 virgin wives. So they ask this question, and this is how Jesus answers. And he 
points out, I believe, the fault in both the Pharisees' theology and the Sadducees' theology. In verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. One of the things Jesus says is that in heaven, it is not merely an, like an extension, an overtime of human existence, but it is a different categorically, different type of existence. It is like an angelic existence, glorious and eternal. That we will not face the kind of human temptations and needs and even mandates that we did when we were in this existence. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, uh, a church filled with really intelligent people, he addresses a question uh, that they had, 1 Corinthians 15, 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's a legitimate question. When we are resurrected, am I a 59-year-old or will I be a 24-year-old? And he answers in verses 40 and 41, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And Paul tells uh, his readers in Corinth that uh, our existence, who we are, will fundamentally, categorically be different in eternity. We cannot think in the same realm. And so the Sadducees question is an error. We're talking different categories now. After having pointed out perhaps the fault in the Pharisees' theology, he also points out the fault in the Sadducees' Theology. Remember, the Sadducees thought that there is no uh, eternal life or resurrection. He says in verse 26, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? Remember, the Sadducees did not believe uh, in any of the books but the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and Jesus says, Have you not read the book of Moses, and he's going to refer to the book of Exodus. In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. You believe in the book of Exodus, the writing of Moses, do you not? Sadducees, they would say yes. Didn't God, when he encountered uh, Moses through the burning bush, and when Moses asked him, Which, um, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Not I was, but I am. And he refers to I am of three dead people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How can God be the present tense, I am God of someone, uh, by the way, uh, who no longer exists. And the Sadducees were effective annihilists, meaning they believed that after death, you just simply disappear. It's kind of what the secularists believe today. 
There is no eternal existence. And so what, Paul, uh, what Jesus is saying is that if Abraham no longer exists, how can God say of himself, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac? I think it's brilliant. He's using the second book of the Bible, one that, that, that the Sadducees accepted as the word of God, to prove that not only is God is, uh, eternal, but there is life eternal. It was clear that Jesus won the debate. Verse 17, the, they marveled at his response. In verse 28, uh, a scribe that was listening thought that, boy, he gave great answers. So, in this debate with some of the greatest thinkers of that time who questioned Jesus, did he change their minds? Did he change their minds? We get the answer just a couple of days later. Uh, the religious leaders band together. They arrest Jesus by night to avoid the crowd. They have a, a speedy, illegal trial. They condemn him to death. But remember, they don't have the power of capital punishment. So they send him to Pilate. And this was a hurdle, remember. They have to convince Pilate that he's guilty. In Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, and listen carefully, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They just flat out lied. They could not get him to say anything that would cause uh, the Roman government to find him guilty of insurrection. So they make things up. They just lie collectively. And that is why if you, if you, if you read the gospel accounts, uh, Pontius Pilate, he, he becomes so suspicious. And he says, speak up. What say you, Jesus? And, and I find no guilt in this man. But he succumbs under pol uh, to political pressure. Says, well, it's better that he dies. Jesus doesn't defend himself at that time because the reason he came is to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus was ultimately executed under false trial, false accusation, false witnesses. Let me ask you a question. How could the most religious, most educated, most connected, group of people resort to lying about the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings. It's not because they lacked biblical knowledge. They had more biblical knowledge than anyone else. It's not because they did not have an opportunity to meet God. They actually met God. It's not because they didn't have an opportunity to, to ask questions that, that would uh, chip away at the, nogging, uh, the gnawing doubts that they had. They had plenty of opportunity. Let me uh, think with me. What caused the, the, the group of most brilliant thinkers to reject truth and in fact embrace a lie that they fabricate? I said from the beginning, the problem with thinkers 
is that they search for truth and they will hold on to truth and this is the other, uh, but this is the danger with thinkers. That oftentimes we think that our search for truth, that our debates, that our arguments, that our questions, that they themselves uh, uh, validate sometimes the lies that our hearts hold on to. For the religious leaders at this time, they cared more about their position, their authority, their place in society more than truth. And they used these questions and debates and arguments somehow to cover up the fact that they're hiding the idols of their heart. There are two types of thinkers when they approach God. There's a type of thinker who asks a clumsy, imprecise question, what is the greatest commandment? How can a man be born again? Where do we worship? Jesus patiently walks them through and they walk away with a greater awareness of God and, and it's because, not that they're smarter, but they come asking these questions with open hearts and open hands. And then there are the type of thinkers who come and ask the more precise, intellectual, more difficult questions. Shall we pay taxes? Shall we, what happens in heaven? What sign do you give to us? But they walk away oftentimes with a greater hardness in their heart. A more, uh, they walk away more distant from the Son of God, and it is because they weren't asking to they weren't asking in the beginning because they wanted the truth. They weren't asking with an open heart, but rather uh, they were asking with a guarded heart, a calloused heart, and that encounter has made them even more callous, more distant, more convinced of the idolatry in their heart. I'm gonna ask the band to come up at this time and I'm gonna ask us at this um, time right now and, and I, you know, I, I just feel like we, at, at Living Hope, we have so many people who are thinkers and feelers and we do this too, that oftentimes we pursue truth but there's an unwillingness in our hearts to submit, confess, and repent of the truth that God is already giving to us. And so we use that pursuit of truth as an excuse, um, as a rationale, as a trap to justify our lack of repentance. So can we at this time just bow our heads and can we take that 30 seconds? And would you ask the Holy Spirit and would you say uh, to him, Lord, I, I come before you with open hearts and open hands. Would you work in my mind and my heart? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess 
that so often we think we're a lot smarter than we are and we make ourselves believe that our hearts are more pure than it really is that that we fool ourselves into thinking that we worship you rather than the idols in our hearts Lord God we confess the lack that we have and we ask that you continue to convict us and that even right now we open our hearts we open our hands we open our our heads Lord continue to be patient with us uh, work within us we pray in Jesus name we pray amen let's rise